missions committee and everyone involved in that Skype session. That is the best use of technology I've ever seen. That was great. Thank you all. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Chapter 5 is orderly, but it is not completely sequential. In other words, it doesn't flow from section to section in chronological order. The writers of the Bible are not constrained to write only in chronological order, in case you're wondering. So what do we have here in chapter 5? Well, how many of you all have uh, one or more collages collages in your home? That photo gallery that's sitting somewhere with a bunch of pictures, kind of just wherever you need to put them. Mine's in my kitchen, and uh, there's groups of pictures of kids and family which aren't arranged in any necessary, necessarily sequential chronological order. That's to keep the mystery going on some of the people. They tell a story and give perspective to the sweeping and the glorious history of our kids, of which one here today can attest. But you'll have to uh, go to our photo albums to get the chronological order. Well, that's what a collage is, a, com a composition of several fragments of information in one place. And that's what we see here in chapter 5. Except that unlike you and I, who sometimes resort to collages because we can't figure out the exact order, uh, God's purposes here is to purposefully give us what one has called a kingdom collage kingdom collage, knowing that we have enough information elsewhere to answer the sequential questions, at least most of them anyway. And I'll point this out as we go through the chapter. If you are able, would you please stand? I'm going to read just the first five verses of this chapter, um, although we will cover the whole thing today. Reading from the ESV. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought it in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now notice in this first section, what is being focused on is God's promise 
to David to be king. Notice that verse 1 begins with, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. In other words, it's finally happening. What God promised through his prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, 14 has happened. Samuel tells Saul there, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And very soon after, in 1 Samuel chapters 15 and 16, we see God rejecting Saul and leading Samuel to his choice, David. Now probably the representatives of all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. They, they state their intent to David by saying three things. First they say what their relationship is to David. In other words, they now say, now we are your, bo- your bone and flesh. And secondly, they say who they look to for leadership. Did you notice that in verse 2? In times past... When Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And then the crucial point is the third one, in the second part of verse 2. They, their agreement with and commitment to what God has promised. There we read, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now everyone's agreeing to that. It took a while, didn't it? In the context of 1st and 2nd Samuel, we need to realize just that. The context that all this is happening in. Why? Because if you don't realize all the twists and the turns of the story, what has finally come to pass here just won't deliver the punch that God intends you to feel and know with all your heart. In other words, those of you who have been here almost all the time during this whole journey through 1 Samuel and now 2 Samuel, you should feel the punch in your stomach. You should be excited. Oh, it finally came. This is finally happening. If you just walked in this morning and you don't know the story very well, you'll go, well, yeah. This is a very, very big deal. If you do realize what all has gone on, then I'm sure you are reading this verse here with some wonder and some awe at how God accomplished something that looked so impossible earlier. It's as if the author is saying here, especially in verses 3 through 5, it's, it's like the author is saying, look, see here? See how God's promise to David has come to pass? See how it weathered the bitterness of Saul? Some foolishness and sin by David, especially in his alliance with the Philistines and his polygamy. See how it weathered the rebellion of the other 11 tribes, the political and personal maneuvering of the Amalekites, uh, Abner, Joab, Rahab, Baana, etc., etc., the intense opposition we see in almost every account that we've looked at. See how God's promise weathered all that? So what's the point? The point is something that we all need to hear, no matter how tired you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what 
kind of depression you're in and the state of affairs in our particular country at this particular time of year, there is hope here. And the hope is all of God's promises are certain, no matter how much resistance they may meet. That's the big story. That's why these are exciting stories. Because God is the one who's lifted up. His promises are the ones he brings to pass no no matter how much resistance there has been. Right? Someday, y'all are going to be able to go, Amen! Without, you won't feel guilty and embarrassed. This is exciting. Then we look at verses 6 through 10, this next section here. And it recounts David's defeat of the Jebusites, taking the stronghold of Zion. Where is this? This is Jerusalem. Let me read that really quick, starting in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You'll not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would, make, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around him, from Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Get all that? In the middle of there is how he did it. We'll see that in just a second. Now, we should know, or be fairly acquainted with, the Abrahamic covenant, which is when the Lord is swearing by himself that he will see to it that his promises will come to pass Why do we say it that way? When God made his covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. It's all what God promised. The animals were sacrificed, cut in half, and he walked between them with the pot fire. That was a theophany of a smoking fire pot that passed between the pieces of the animal carcasses and in this covenant there was promises that were repeatedly referred to until the time of the conquest this is way back way back why am i mentioning this because in every list in Exodus 3:8:17, Exodus 13:5, Exodus 23:23, Exodus 33:2, Exodus 34:11, Deuteronomy 7:1, Joshua 3:10 and 12:8, <clears throat> the Jebusites are the last group men- mentioned in all those lists of people who were persecuting God's people. And where are these guys now? They are in Jerusalem. Did they just walk in one day? No, they've been there. They've been there. It's interesting, isn't it, that they are listed like that? Judah did win a big victory at Jerusalem 
when they went into the land during the period of the Judges in Judges 1.8. But we read there that they were unable to occupy it and they were unable to drive out the Jebusites. The bottom line is explained in Judges 1.21 when we read, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And what time of day was that? It was the time of the Judges. We're now in the time of the Kings. So now several hundred years later, David took the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. This is the fortified section, which is south of where the Temple Mount is. There's some valleys, and it's kind of in the south part, the skinny part. It doesn't look like much. It's called this, that's the name, the city of David. This is why. The whole area was called what? Jerusalem. But the fortified part was what David took first, which of course meant that the control of the whole city and the whole area was forthcoming. Now how did he accomplish this? The text just gives us one little sentence here. This is kind of a strange account. But in in verse 6 we see the ancient version of taunting. The Jebusites think their fortress is impregnable, so they defy David by doing what? By taunting him with, you'll never take us. Our blind and crippled will hold your pitiful force at bay. That's basically what they're saying. Didn't go over too well with David. Verse 7 just says that David made them eat their words. And then in verse 8, we get a clue about how the battle was fought and why it didn't last very long. Did you see verse 8? And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. What is he talking about? Well, there was a spring outside the east wall of this fortress, the Gihon Spring, that had evidently been disguised by closing it up and diverting the water westward and upward underneath the city wall and then upward some more into the city. So even if the city were under siege, the inhabitants would have what? A vital water supply. And hopefully the enemy would not be able to figure out where the spring actually was. But guess what? David either already knew or discovered where this tunnel system was. And although the Hebrew, in the Hebrew it is not clear exactly whether his men went through the tunnels and shafts or just cut off their water supply, the bottom line is that the maneuver was a victorious one. Sneaky, smart. It worked. The bottom line is that it was victorious, this, this maneuver. So David now has control for the United Kingdom and Jerusalem is centrally located between the north and the south so no one could cry foul. We're not included in this. You showed favoritism. This is is a strategically located city. Now the point here, remember first, 
verses 1 through 5, teach us that God's promises are certain no matter how much resistance there is. Verses 6 through 10 teach us that God's promises are certain no matter how much time it takes to fulfill them. Do you need to hear this today? God's promises are certain no matter how much resistance or how much time it takes to fulfill them. Now, we need perspective. Some of us need to get a grip. Our country has been here barely over 200 years. It was about 800 years between God's promise to Abraham and David. 800 years. And nothing in those many years eroded God's promise, even though it looked like it over and over and over and over again. In other words, there's no expiration date on God's promise. And our response should is voiced in Hebrews 12, first part of verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that, can, that cannot be shaken. This is what God desired to see from his people when he finally brought it to pass, and we should echo that same gratefulness. Not because we are unshakable, but because God's promises are firm is why we're grateful. So firm that time can't dissolve them. The case of Abraham, for instance, nor enemies sabotage them, the case of David. That's why we want, we should want to learn and know the Old Testament to see what leads up to the birth of Christ and how long the people that were attentive and knew God's word had looked forward to what God did in Christ when he brought it. But here is a forerunner, a type of Christ. A king of God's choosing after his own heart was on the throne, finally. In the third part of this chapter, in verses 11 and 12, we go, whoa, what is this doing in here? Right after this great, great exaltation, we see in verse 11 and 12... A, the witness of a foreign nation recognizing the recognition of Tyre of David's kingdom. So we get an inside view and now we get the recognition of who? Those around them. That God's done something and it's taken a while but it has happened. And this is the part that actually happens later in David's reign. This is the part that's not really in chronological order. But the point is, as verse 12 says, that David's new permanent residence, his new permanent residence, is a sign of how God had established and confirmed his reign over Israel. But that's not all. Notice the end of verse 12. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, think about that. God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What does that mean? Simply that God did not make David king only so that he could act like a king finally and not be hiding out in caves and, you know, wild man in the wilderness. It wasn't about that. He made king so that David could function as a servant toward his people. Do you see a parallel in that statement with why Christ came? Who David points to? Yes, you should. In other words, the kingship was not for David's welfare, but for God's people's welfare provided by God. Kingship was not the end, it was the means to an end, the benefit of God's people. David is over Israel for Israel. And what's the message? Apply it. Take a breath. Let's apply it. Christ insists that all of his disciples must have this attitude, which is why the one another passages are so prevalent in the New Testament. And, for instance, Mark 10, which is a story about James and John wanting to sit on the right and left of Christ in glory of his reign. And we know what happened there, right? Jesus uses this time to get across a message, and basically it was this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Leaders are especially are to be examples of serving and protecting for the sake of God's people. Guarding against a concern for recognition and acceptance and even adulation, which is what most people want. The, the power grab. And it's important for everybody in the body of Christ to have this same attitude, especially leaders. And that's the true kingdom vision for God's glory and each other's good, not my glory and my good. I had, you guys know I went to California for a couple of days to see my daughter's play. Uh, a, a Christian college with a theater program can be a hot button for a lot of people for obvious reasons. So she gets out on the stage to introduce the play and does so the title was, You Can't Take It With You. Some of, a lot of you have probably seen the movie. And, she's, and she explains that this theater program is not that so the diva can, from high school can sing their hearts out, this one wasn't a musical, or be center stage as one of the main, as one of the main uh, characters in the play, but that everybody was there, cast and crew, was there to help everybody else do the part that they needed to do so that the story could be told and be a gift to the audience. And you could hear a pin drop in there. Now, I've heard this before. But it's like the community is like, what? 
And one of their main jobs is dealing with people at the school who grew up in Christian homes and are Christians who love the spotlight and the glory. Therefore, they want to be in this production. And she's had to sit them on the sidelines sometimes and let them work and let them learn that they're there to give and that they're there to show that other people can can enjoy this gift. And finally, story after story after story of these fabulous young people who have learned to humble themselves before one another so that the actors and the people on the stage are, are complimenting and encouraging the cast, the production crew, the guys that build the sets, and it all works together and people see a difference by it. Can you see that here? That's what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. That's why God has given us different gifts and abilities. Not to bring glory to ourselves or point to ourselves, but to point to the one who gives the gift and equips us the way he has made us. That's the beauty of it. That's what the world notices. So check yourself. Hebrews 12.15 will allow us to do this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many come to file. Because so-and-so got mentioned and I didn't. Because I never got the part I wanted. Because I never... You fill in the blank. That's the beauty. Christ came to die for us. He was God. David was there to serve and protect his people. And here in this collage in chapter 5, it pictures the different aspects of God's promise to David in establishing his kingdom. And it is, well, this should be a question. Is it a coincidence that right after the account about the recognition of what God has done in putting David on his throne for the sake of his people Israel, we come to verses 13 and 14. Read them. Take a second, read it. We have a factual account of David's sin that we know in later chapters especially will bring disastrous consequences to the people He is supposed to love and protect in his own family as well as the people of the nation that he rules. And in these verses is a list of more concubines and wives for himself. Remember the law for the kings in Deuteronomy 17, 17, and the king shall not acquire many wives or multiply wives for himself lest his heart turn away. And already in 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 and 4, we've already seen the beginning of this list, where the list list was David already had three wives, Michael, Abigail, and Ahinoam. And these facts appear without apology, if you notice. But just because an historical narrative does not comment in every instance of sin and rebellion, don't think for one minute that this practice was something that God approved. And I've heard this all my life, and you probably have too. But polygamy's in the Bible. 
Yeah, sin's all over the place in the Bible. And just because right there it doesn't say stop, P.S., this is sin, we know from everywhere else it is, and we see the consequences of it. So, these facts do appear without apology, but don't think for one minute that it was something that God approved. In other words, narrative, historical narrative like we're in, sometimes expects something of the reader, you, me. And it expects us to infer a point of view even if it's not explicit. You get that? We read it, warning flags should go off. Whoa, this guy was a sinner just like you and me. And there's an example of this that we will see, but here in, in 2 Samuel 6, it doesn't explicitly say that David was wrong to transport <clears throat> the ark on a cart. Oh, this is coming up later. Uh, Philistine style, when he brings the Ark of the Covenant back, the next chapter. But the charge, but the change in how it was transported on the second attempt leads to the reader to correctly infer that yes, this was not according to God's law. So we've got to be smart when we read. We, we've got to be engaged. We all know that. But you've got to know the rest of Scripture to be able to look and interpret what's going on when you read these these facts are lists of sins when they're just presented and there's no commentary by the author. That's the point. And we know that kings often in history have tied politics to marriage to secure all areas, alliances and treaties, etc. But scripture is still clear in, in communicating God's desire for marriage to be one man and one woman, not multiples of either. And that's made pretty clear in Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians. So what's the point? My hero. I'm going to have to pick a new one. I know that most of us have had that thought. You're all excited about David, and then you see his family, and you're going, nope, I can't, I can't do this. Folks, get this. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of David's descendant who will always do what pleases the Father. That's the point. Our hope is not in anybody but Christ. All people are sinners. And they will disappoint. It makes us look to Christ. So take your disappointment about whoever or whatever and take it to Christ. Thank you, God, for sending a Savior for us that was perfect in every way and did not sin. He is the one that is faithful, so we look to Him. That's the point. And then at the end of this chapter, in 17 verse, through verse 25, is the part of the collage that pictures the defender who protects his kingdom. 
And this is a positive type of Christ here that David's doing. So, do you like the order of this chapter? Great stuff, great stuff. Interesting stuff. David's sin. And then, ooh, David's a type of Christ. He conquers all these people. The Philistines, remember those guys? The ones he was living with? The ones he looked to to protect him? So, the Philistines hear all this news about David establishing his kingdom in the capital of Jerusalem. And remember, it wasn't that long ago that David was hiding from Saul under their protection. So you can imagine how this went over. They thought he was hopefully on some kind of leash back when he was there with them. He'd, he'd lied to them, etc. We, we remember those stories. But he wasn't on any leash, so they decided to act before his power was consolidated here. In other words, all these guys show up. They anoint him king over them all. And they're going, we've got to attack now before they can get organized. That's basically what they're doing. So, how does God protect his kingdom? Well, we see how God provides his guidance as David inquires of the Lord twice in verse 19 and verse 23 about what to do. Do you remember the times when he did not inquire of the Lord? And the disasters that came afterwards? And then later, God in his grace did deliver him because his promise of a kingdom was still to him, through him. God answers both times, but with very different methods. You ever been around people who read one verse in the Old Testament and go, ah, I'm going to write a book. God will do this every time because he did it once this way. Watch out. God's really creative. The point is that he guides and protects. He guides and protects. And we see how God protects his kingdom by his power. The verbs in this section of David's attacks give this away, but because what's described is that the Lord has burst through. Check your version and see what you read in verse 20 and down through 24. The Lord has burst through my enemies like a bursting flood. He really likes the burst word here. Has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. These are, there's no other way to describe it. It's a picture of nothing can hold back God's power. So he just busts through anything that is not... Um, the way God wants to do it. He wants to give David the power to finally defeat these people and protecting his people who he's just been anointed king over. So the power is unleashed here. Does that mean God's going to unleash it every single time there's something in the way? No. But it sure is true here. And he's very creative in how he protects his people and why when he does so. So God describes himself as the warrior who plunges into battle and he literally knocks off the Philistines. The point is that we have a God who smashes and fights his enemies, who therefore can defend his sheep. 
This again leads us straight into eschatology, the end times of the end, at the end, the end times, the end things. When Christ does return, he will unleash his mighty power that no one can resist. And he will make things right. All those things that, that tear your soul up and rip your heart out, that are wrong, the injustice, the pain and suffering of his church, he will make all things right. Now the question is, is your God lame? Have you imposed or substituted your plan of victory over his plan of redemption? And if he doesn't do something powerful just the way you want him to and expect him to, does that mean that he's lame? And so you chunk him and try your own methods over and over until you finally learn that what he's teaching you is that when he will do it, he will do it. And you better ask him first. And you better depend on him first. And it might not go your way for a while. He may want to work other ways, which we've seen over and over already. And which you will get a big dose of in that insanity of God move. And remember that the triumphal procession that Christ will lead us in and, and leads us in now is through the cross. And we forget that. Now, the triumph comes through the cross. And it's because of his completed work on the cross and our resulting union with him that we can cultivate faithfulness through gratitude. And you know what? We've said this over and over. We, I can't hear this enough myself. Therefore, you get a part of it. But we, what do we see here? If we're not grateful, if your heart is not grateful, then you've imposed what you think God should do into your own circumstances. And that's making yourself out to be God which is obviously not being grateful, full circle. And that's a sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. And we won't be faithful to him if we're not grateful to him for who he is and how he works. Those things go together. One motivates the other. You must be grateful. And as you're grateful to God, your faith grows and you're more and more faithful. God's promises are certain no matter how much resistance there is to them. God's promises are certain no matter how much time it takes for their fulfillment. Do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? And you can tell whether you do by how grateful you are to God. For everything. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a passage again. Your word has gone straight to the marrow of our hearts in our inner being. 
slice through all of our rationalizations, our desires for our own glory, for this to be the center of attention, to people, for people to recognize us, for people to tell us that they recognize us. And we've seen that the body of Christ is called to serve and protect. Oh God, thank you that you sent your son, that Christ came to serve, die for us, pay for our sin and that he has us he has us your purposes are greater than we can imagine and we pray in these more and more difficult times that we could think with grateful minds and hearts so that we would be faithful to you when it's so complicated it seems as to how to be faithful and we ask that in Christ's name amen Would you please stand for our benediction? Peace be to you and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. You're dismissed.